Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Walpaw, and we have a fantastic show for you today. I am really excited to have with me one of our electrophysiology fellows here, and we'll explain what that is. But we're going to talk about pacemakers in the perioperative setting. This is something I've had a ton of requests to talk about. I thought about trying to talk about it by myself and realized that would not be good. We should bring on an expert, and I have with me Dr. Jared Miller, who is truly that an expert. He is going to be done with his electrophysiology fellowship in just a little over a month and he is going to be our expert today jared welcome to the show all right thanks a lot for having me this is um of all the offices i've been into this is the most elaborate sound studio and also only sound studio i've been in so i am happy to be the most elaborate uh with my setup here so thanks again uh now i do want to explain to folks what is an electrophysiologist in case they don't know so you have done a medicine residency correct me if i'm wrong a cardiology fellowship correct a and then a, an electrophysiology super fellowship yes so i'm uh, wrapping up my pgy8 year impressive so medicine's three years cardiology is three Exactly. And then uh, this is a two-year electrophysiology fellowship. That's great. Well, congratulations on almost being done. Uh, You certainly are someone who knows a lot about pacemakers. And so let's jump right in. And let me ask you, we hear that term all the time, of course, the patient has a pacemaker. So what is a pacemaker and what do we mean when we say that? Oh, no. I was hoping you... No, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm prepared for that one. Okay. I'm glad. So, um, you know, actually, before we even get there, I guess one thing that I'll say is... um, the world of pacemakers and defibrillators can be very confusing if you don't deal with it every day. Um, and so um, I think a lot of people just want to sort of give up at the beginning. Absolutely. Um, but so it's totally perfectly reasonable uh, to not be super comfortable with them if you don't work with them every day. Um, the actual concepts are simple, so there's no one listening to this podcast that isn't capable of understanding it if they really uh, wanted to. But no one should ever feel bad because they didn't understand the pacing mode or something. There's also so much variability between manufacturers and different pacemakers and things like that. That, that even people who do do it every day uh, are frequently looking things up and being surprised by what they find. So Great. And, of course, uh, we will focus on the most kind of clinically relevant stuff for people practicing anesthesia. There's going to be a ton of details which you know or, or do at least work with, which uh, we will never need to know. But there's going to be a lot of stuff that can be really useful. Plus, as folks out there know, this is frequently tested, stuff like the different pacemaker uh, terminology, what is DDI versus VVI and all that stuff. So we'll get into that. But 
uh, I think this will be really helpful for folks. So what is a pacemaker? So a pacemaker fundamentally is a solution for bradyarrhythmias. So it's a way to keep the heart rate up. So there's two reasons someone might have a pacemaker. I mean, truthfully, there's more than two reasons. So there's two main reasons. One is because they have sinus node dysfunction, so their sinus rate is too slow. And then two, and probably the more common one, is that they have some kind of AV block. So uh, the sinus node is firing, the atria is contracting, but it's not getting through the AV node down to the ventricles. Um, So for most people, uh, a pacemaker is a subcutaneous device that basically is a battery and some computer parts, and then it's attached to two wires. Typically, those are going to be transvenous, although they could be going subcutaneous onto the outside of the heart, but typically transvenous going through the subclavian vein, down the IJ, and then into either the right atrium or the right ventricle, typically. Uh, And the idea is it has two main functions. One is pacing the heart, so basically electrically stimulating or tickling the heart, telling it to contract, and then two is sensing, sensing what the heart is doing so that it knows when to pace and when not to pace. And you said two wires, so are they both going into the same place, or are they going to different places? Yeah, so I, I've oversimplified already. So um, I would say, on average, you're going to have, or in general, you're going to have one to three wires. So uh, there's something called a single-chamber pacemaker, um, and typically that would be one going into the right ventricle, although technically it could also be one going into the right atrium. But generally, a single-chamber pacemaker is going into the right ventricle. There's something called a dual-chamber pacemaker, uh, where you have one lead in the right atrium and one lead in the right ventricle. And then there's something called biventricular pacing, or CRT, cardiac resynchronization therapy, uh, where there's sometimes a third wire, and that one actually gets kind of snaked behind the backside of the heart uh, into the coronary sinus vein um, and paces both of the ventricles. And we'll talk about that a little more later. Great. All right. So that's nice, though, because it's a simple way to think about pacemaker. It's for bradyarrhythmias. It's either for sinus dysfunction or AV block. Now, the other thing that I think we often conflate with a pacemaker, though it is different, is an AICD. So what's that, and how does it differ from a pacemaker? Sure. So an ICD, an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, uh, there's some overlap. So, uh, again... touch of simplification here, but basically all ICDs are also pacemakers, but not all pacemakers are also ICDs. So an ICD, similarly, a subcutaneous device, a battery, also a capacitor to build up charge, uh, and computer parts attached to wires that go into the heart. And they can completely act in a pacemaker-like function. So generally we'll have all the features of a pacemaker of that many leads. On top of that, they have an extra feature of being able to deal with tachyarrhythmias. So uh, a common uh, misconception is that the ICD is going to do something to sort of keep the heart rate down. It doesn't do that. What it does is it basically just watches the heart rate, and if it ever goes too fast um, into heart rhythms that are most likely to be ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, uh, then it can deliver um, tachyarrhythmia therapies. And those consist of two things. One is rapidly pacing the heart, something called anti-tachycardia pacing, ATP, and then the one we're most familiar with, which is delivering a shock to the heart. I think of an ICD as, in the way I explain it to patients, it's like the sprinkler system in your home. Um, It's 99.9% of the time, hopefully for your whole life, it just sits there never doing anything. But if there's a fire or there's VT or VF, it'll be there for you. Great. That's a, I love that as an analogy. Now, how does it decide whether to do rapid pacing or shock? Is that something you program it to do, or does it depend on what it sees? Yeah. So uh, these are um, they're just like your iPhone. There are infinite programmable features to this. So um, the it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly, and there's a lot of layers to the onion. But um, fundamentally, um, when you get to certain heart rate cutoffs, these tachycardia therapies uh, will kick in. 
Um, and generally, it starts with the antitachycardia pacing because that's painless and has the ability to potentially uh, terminate the arrhythmia without the patient maybe even knowing about mm -hmm. it. Uh, and then sort of the last line of defense is delivering shocks to the heart. Um, now, what you'll find is, depending on how it's programmed, often at sort of slower heart rates that might be VT, um, you might start with the pacing and then go to shocking. At much faster heart rates, you know, like 240 beats per minute, that's generally going to be VF, um, and then it might go straight to shocking the heart. Okay. And with the rapid pacing, is the idea that, okay, my heart is beating at, I don't know, 180 beats per minute, and if this uh, machine, I'm just making up numbers here, but if this machine can pace my heart at 190 beats per minute, then when my heart tries to do that 181st beat, it's going to be in a refractory. It's going to be, it won't be able to actually conduct, and so it'll stop. I'm, I'm starting to realize why maybe there's no EP podcast that I know of, and that's because uh, a picture is very helpful here. But, you know, fundamentally, these ventricular tachycardias are a circuit, and you're trying to sort of pace into that circuit and to sort of break it. Um, you can imagine kind of a snake chasing its tail, and so you, you're trying to basically kind of stop that snake from, from making it around. So, so. By, so you want those, those, myo, uh, those um, myocytes to be refractory when exactly. the snake comes around. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. So... Let me ask you this. When, uh, can you tell on a chest X-ray if, if a device is an AICD or a pacemaker? Yes. And how do you tell? By the picture that I'm drawing right now. <laughs> um, so the two, this takes a little practice. Um, not much. Yeah, I think you could even teach yourself off of a Google image search, to be honest. But um, fundamentally, the differences are um, if you just look at the, the generator or the can up in the chest, uh, for an ICD, it's going to be larger. Um, and uh, you'll also notice that there's a battery and a capacitor, whereas a pacemaker will just have a battery. Again, this will make more sense if you're able to look at some pictures. Yeah. Um, and then probably the best thing to look at is the actual lead going down into the heart. Um, and that lead uh, for a pacemaker tends to be thinner, um, and then for a defibrillator, it's a thicker wire, especially down in the heart, where you'll see a sort of a coil towards the distal end, um, and that coil is needed to deliver the charge or the shock. Great. All right. That's really helpful. There's a term out there that people may see, C-I-E-D. Is that different? What is that? What does that mean? Um, so C-I-E-D is really a, a literature term. It's not as uh, frequently used, um, I think, colloquially around the hospital. But basically, it's meant to, met, be, meant to mean pacemakers and defibrillators. So it's uh, a cardiac, uh, cardiovascular uh, implantable electronic device. Um, so it's just sort of a, a catch-all term, at least in the literature, for pacemakers and defibrillators. But... Um, you, you'd be very reasonable to just walk around saying pacemaker or defibrillator. Great. All right. So that's kind of a catch-all term. So what would be the reason why someone might get a pacemaker or an AICD? How would you decide, no, they don't need, they don't need both? So we're, we said all AICDs are also pacemakers. So they're either going to get both or they're going to get just a pacemaker. Sure. So who needs just a pacemaker and who needs both? So... Um, you need a pacemaker uh, if you have a problem with sinus node dysfunction or complete heart block. Uh, and basically, one or two of those things can happen to any person. Um, and when they do, they can result in what we call symptomatic bradycardia. So if you have symptomatic bradycardia from either sinus node dysfunction or AV block, um, then you're going to get a pacemaker generally. Again, that's an oversimplification, but those are the two kind of main categories. Okay. Defibrillator is a little bit more complicated, um, and we're much more uh, selective in who gets a defibrillator. And generally, there are sort of two categories of people who get a defibrillator, um, and we call those primary prevention and secondary prevention. 
So secondary prevention means someone who's had a VT or VF arrest before, um, and that wasn't due to some easily reversible cause. So if they had VT or VF because of you know some heat crazy spike in potassium for whatever reason, something that we can correct, then they don't really need a defibrillator long term. Right. Um, but otherwise, uh, they're good candidates for a defibrillator. Uh, then primary prevention. Um, is defined as people generally with uh, heart failure um, who we know to be at high risk of having a VT or VF episode or arrest in the future. So these are people who, it's never happened to them before, um, but we know from studies of thousands of patients that uh, that certain classes of, of heart failure and things like that um, can uh, put people at high risk. So th- the reason we're so selective is that um, well, a defibrillator is very expensive, but the bigger thing is that anytime you have this device, um, there's some morbidity and mortality that goes with the surgery. And then also there's always a risk of people getting what are called inappropriate shocks. So that can be straight up because the device uh, malfunctioned in some way, or it can be, for example, because of rapid AFib being misinterpreted um, as VT or VF. And everybody has some risk of inappropriate shock. So you want the, the patient that you're giving a defibrillator to to have their risk of an appropriate shock or a life-saving therapy be significantly greater than the risk of an inappropriate shock. So that's why we don't just hand them out to anyone who needs a pacemaker. They have to really meet these criteria. Absolutely. All right. So you mentioned heart failure, people at risk. That would also include, for example, uh, patients with HOCAM, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then... What about post-op? Because that's something we see a lot, obviously, in the anesthesia world. If someone, let's say, post-cardiac surgery has a profoundly low uh, ejection fraction, but it's thought that maybe in time it will improve, I would assume you would want to wait and see how it goes before putting one in. Exactly. So, um, again, uh, for reasons uh, that are both medical and cost-related, you generally have to have a depressed ejection fraction for greater than three months, despite being on what we call optimal guideline-directed medical therapy. Therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are actually some studies that show, for example, uh, immediately post-cardiovascular surgery when the EF is low, uh, the people did worse when a defibrillator was implanted up front. Um, so the, the rules are pretty strict, um, and, and any electrophysiologist who's uh, managed to keep his license or his or her license is, is probably knows these rules, and, um, and it, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty set who is and is not a candidate for a defibrillator. Great. All right, let's review the terminology used to describe the modes of pacemakers because that is something that we get tested on a lot. So uh, you you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there are five potential uh, places that can hold a uh, letter. The first three are the ones that are most often tested and I think probably are the most significant, and the last two maybe a little less so, but let's just review them. Okay. So tell me what they are. Okay, so um, there is a pacemaker code. So you guys are now going to know the code. So right, giving divulging our secrets. So, <laughs> so um, the first they I would say they go sort of in in order of importance, kind of like you mentioned. So the first uh, first sort of letter that's possible in there is the chamber being paced, um, and so um, the. I'll, before we go into the other letters, was kind of explained. So basically, um, so the chamber being paced. So the possibilities there are A for atrium, V for ventricle, or D, which means dual, atrium and ventricle. So if you think about the first pacemaker ever invented, that was actually like a, a briefcase that the patient you know walked around with sure. that was connected to their heart. Um, all it had the ability to do was pace. It didn't have the ability to know when to pace or when not to, just at a, a set kind of metronome-like way, it paced. Um, and so um, there, and it was connected to the ventricle. So we would put a V there for ventricle. 
And then for sensing and, and other things, it didn't have any of those features, so we just put O's there. So the most basic pacemaker mode you can possibly have is something called VOO, which means one chamber, uh, one wire connected to the ventricle, pacing at a set rate, not sort of listening to what the heart is doing or anything like that. So that would be called VOO. Um, you could, in theory, have a pacemaker with just one wire in the atrium, and that would be AOO mode. I'll admit I've almost never seen that before. Right. Okay. And then the other possibility uh, is that it's a dual-chamber pacemaker connected to the atrium and the ventricle, and it's DOO. So there you're pacing atrium, then ventricle, atrium, then ventricle, maintaining what we call AV synchrony. Um, but again, not sort of sensing the heart or how fast the patient's native heart rhythm is going, um, but just pacing at that rate. That's Any danger... So the danger of of any, well, at least of a ventricular uh, asynchronous mode, like you're describing, uh, right, is that if you, if the ventricle were to pace on its own, were to fire on its own, and you were to pace into a beat, uh, into a a T wave, right, you could get a V on, uh, an R on T phenomenon and go into V fit. Exactly. So... Um, yeah, so the, just like you just mentioned, those modes, VOO, DOOAO, those are called asynchronous modes. So you may hear um, your sort of EP team or going into surgery saying we're, we made the pacemaker, defibrillator, asynchronous pacing, and that's what that means. Right. Um, and uh, so the biggest concern there, like you mentioned, would be sort of an R on T phenomenon. Um, you know, so now someone who has sort of no underlying rhythm at all, that's very unlikely. But in someone who, um, you know, their heart rate can occasionally go up or down or they only need pacing occasionally and say they're in the operating room and they start bleeding and they become tachycardic on their own, right. you could see what we call sort of competition between the native heart rate uh, and the asynchronous pacing. The R on T phenomenon is possible. The other thing about it is it's just not very physiologic. So you're going to have sort of random pacing of the atrium and the ventricle um, and the patient probably hemodynamically are not going to be as well off as they could be. Right. All right. So we'll come back to when and why you might want to purposefully make someone asynchronous going into an operating room procedure but let's come back to that so okay great so we've done the first letter that's the pace that's the chamber being paced either the atria the ventricle or both yeah what's the second so um, the next chamber or next letter in the code is uh the chamber of the heart that's being sensed so i'll explain that a little bit more in a second but the possibilities there again are going to be a for atrium v for ventricle or d for atrium and ventricle and um so the next sort of most basic, um, so then you, to really know what you're going to do uh, with that second code, you need to know the third letter of the code. And that's sort of the response to a sensed event. Um, so let's maybe go through the next mode called VVI, and we can explain those two things. Mm-hmm. So VVI uh, assumes that there's no, you didn't hear an A or a D in there. So there's just one wire going into the ventricle. And probably worldwide, where a lot of more single-chamber pacemakers are put in, as opposed to in the U.S. where you see mostly dual-chamber pacemakers, uh, VVI is probably the most common uh, pacing mode that one might encounter. So VVI means that you can pace in the ventricle, you can sense in the ventricle, And when you do sense in the ventricle, your response is to inhibit, I, inhibit pacing. The idea being that, let's say you're set at VVI 60 beats per minute, and the underlying heart rate is zero. It's never going to sense anything, so it'll just keep pacing at 60 beats per minute. If if the patient's heart rate is 100 beats per minute, uh, what it'll do is it'll sense a QRS, so the V, in, in the sense that, in the ventricle. And then its response to that sense event is to inhibit pacing in the ventricle. And so what you'll see is sort of just a normal rhythm with no pacing at 100 beats per minute. 
Where it gets more complicated is where there's some overlap or pauses between the two. But fundamentally, after every sensed QRS, a little timer starts. And if that full timer goes by and another QRS doesn't come in, then it'll pace the ventricle. And fundamentally what it's trying to do is not let there be um, sort of a, a gap greater than the 60 beats per minute gap between the next ventricular pacing. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So, All right. So that's VVI. You're pacing the ventricle, you're sensing the ventricle, and when you sense the ventricle beating on its own, you inhibit the pacing so that you do not then pace the ventricle. Exactly. Great. All right. So that's um, VVI. So there is an AII, but again, you don't see many single-chamber pacemakers um, with uh, the one going into the atrium, but that is theoretically possible. Okay. That'd be AAI. So, excuse yes. me, AAI. AAI. Yeah. All right. So very rare. Um, and again, my guess is the reason is that if you only were pacing the atria, then if anything ever happened to delay passage through the AV node, you're, you're not, your pacemaker is useless. Yeah, it would be kind of sad to, <laughs> to have a pacemaker but not have the ability to pace the ventricle and some kind of life-threatening bradyarrhythmia. So. Absolutely. All right. So that's, uh, we said I, obviously, then is one of those possibilities for that right. third letter. What else could be in that third letter? So the third letter can also be uh, a T for triggered, which alone you'll almost never see, or a D, meaning inhibited or triggered. Um, and this comes in for dual chamber pacemakers. So this comes in for pacemakers where in the first two positions you have a D. D meaning you're pacing in the atrium and ventricle, and then the D in the second position meaning that you're sensing in the atrium and the ventricle. Um, and so the mode now is going to be D, D, D. And this is the one I think in practice in the U.S. and in a lot of places you're going to see is the most common pacing mode. And um, the inhibition uh, is still similar. So if the sinus node is going faster than you set the pacemaker for, um, in the atrium you're going to sense that, um, and then you won't pace in the atrium because you don't need to. Similarly, in the ventricle, if the, vent if the patient's ventricular rate is fast enough, um, it'll sense in the ventricle um, and inhibit in the ventricle, so you won't need to pace there. Now, the triggering comes in really when it senses something in the atrium, like a sinus beat, sinus P wave, um, and then if no QRS comes in afterwards, like in complete heart block, then that will trigger pacing in the ventricle. Right. So the, the best way to think about DDD mode is to sort of think about the different possible things that can happen with any individual patient, and I'll go through those sort of quickly now. Great. So if the patient, basically whether you'll see pacing in the atrium or the ventricle comes down to whether the patient's problem is sinus node dysfunction or AV block, neither or both. So if you have a patient who is going at sinus tack at 100 beats per minute and they have great AV conduction, at least in this moment, um, then even though they have a DDD pacemaker, let's say it's set at DDD 60 beats per minute, all you'll see is sinus tack with native AV conduction, and you won't see any pacing. Now, if you change that scenario slightly um, and say that they have sinus node dysfunction but normal AV function, um, then let's say their sinus node is only going at 30 beats per minute, but uh, every time a sinus P wave comes down, it conducts through the um, Hisperkinji system and then creates a native QRS each time, then you'll see atrial pacing and ventricular sensing, uh, what we call an A-pace V-sensed rhythm. Mm -hmm. The opposite could happen. Their sinus node's fine, or maybe they're even tachycardic, but uh, they have AV block. Then what you'll see is atrial sensing and ventricular pacing. Right. And then lastly, if they have a problem with both, then you'll see pacing in both, atrial pace, ventricular paced rhythm. I think a, a really important thing to understand with DDD is that just because the patient's heart rate, uh, just because their device is set at 60 beats per minute, you can see pacing in the ventricle much faster than that. 
So if their sinus node is going 100 beats per minute, it'll pace the ventricle at 100 beats per minute to keep up with that. Right. Now, is that what's called pacemaker-mediated tachycardia, or is that something else? Pacemaker-mediated tachycardia is something different, okay. um, which is uh, maybe getting a little beyond the scope of this. But um, So that what I just described is normal pacemaker function. Basically, right. the idea being the patient starts running up the stairs and their heart rate goes up. Right. Then their sinus node went up, just like yours or mine would. Um, and so you want the uh, ventricular rate to keep up with it. Right. So that's, that's normal pacemaker function. Pacemaker-mediated tachycardia is sort of... To keep it very simple, is sort of when the pacemaker gets confused, and there's actually sort of a circuit that gets created between the patient and their device, um, and it starts uh, pacing at an inappropriately fast rate. Okay. I think we can probably leave it at that. Okay. Let me ask you this. Let's say someone with in a DDD mode goes into AFib with RVR, where their atria is firing very fast. Yeah. Will, their, uh, will the pacemaker... And it's not, they're not conducting it to the ventricle. So yeah. actually, I guess it wouldn't be with RBR. But let's say they had a, a total AV block, but their atria goes into AFib. So now sure. their atrium is firing at 300 beats a minute. And uh, there's no conduction to the ventricle. But will the pacemaker sense those P waves and say, oh, we better fire the ventricle? Exactly. So... Um so I've been oversimplifying. I keep saying DDD60, for example. But often you'll see DDD60 to 120 or right. something like that. And what that upper number is is what's called the upper tracking rate. And so basically what the pacemaker is saying is no matter what I see in the atrium, I'm not going to pace the ventricle faster than that number, 120 beats per minute. So again, in the example of someone running up the stairs or whatever, their uh, heart rate will go up, sinus rate goes up, and then the ventricular pacing keeps up with it. And at 100, if their sinus rate's going at 110 beats per minute, then it'll pace in the ventricle at 110 beats per minute. Once that sinus rate gets above uh, 120, though, the pacemaker will say, that's great sinus rate that you're going 130 beats per minute now. You're getting good exercise, but I'm only pacing the ventricle uh, at 120 beats per minute. That's as fast as I'll go. So in that example where the patient went into AFib, because that upper number is set, just, you know, in AFib, the atrium might be going at 300 beats per minute. It won't pace you at 300 beats per minute because that's going to cause, uh, you know, VF or something like right. that. What the device does do, um, which is pretty smart, is it has this thing called mode switching ability. So when it senses that the atrium's going too fast, something that's very unlikely to be sinus rhythm, for, and that depends on the age of the patient, but let's say the cutoff is like 100 beats per minute. When it notices the atrium going greater than 180 beats per minute, for example, it says that's probably atrial tachycardia, or more likely atrial flutter or atrial fibrillation. And it'll do something called an automatic mode switch, where it switches to a different mode, uh, where instead of trying to keep up with that and pacing it at 120 beats per minute or something, it'll pace it at some lower number that the pacemaker set to, like 70 beats per minute. Great. All right. Well, that's fantastic. All right. So we visited the first, second, and third letters. Now, there is a fourth and a fifth, right? They're mm -hmm. kind of less commonly talked about, at least in our field, but let's just go over them. What is the fourth? Okay. So the fourth letter you'll see, um, and basically it's either left off entirely or it's an R. And the R stands for rate responsiveness. And so, um, so you might see VVIR or DDDR. Those would be the most common ones you'd see. And rate responsiveness is a feature of the pacemaker that's really applicable to people with sinus node dysfunction. And the idea being that, let's say you have profound sinus node dysfunction and, and your sinus node never goes above 30 beats per minute or something. If you're set at VVI 60 or DDD 60, uh, your heart rate will always be 60, even if you're active or running or scared or whatever. Right. So um, what 
the rate responsiveness means uh, is that in response to certain stimuli, it'll actually bring up the heart rate. And what that is depends on the manufacturer. Um, the most common one you'll see is this sort of piezoelectric sensor that senses activity or motion. So if it senses that you're moving a lot, it'll actually just slowly bring the heart rate up. Um, and then as once it senses that you've stopped moving, it'll bring the heart rate back down. Um, that's not as relevant when someone's on the operating room table because they don't tend to be moving. Although, um, although actually, uh, we'll talk about sort of electromagnetic interference and things. And so it is possible for the device to get confused during surgery um, and bring the heart rate up um, and then down. So generally, if, if we do reprogram someone for surgery, we tend to turn that function off. Great. All right. And then fi- there's a fifth, maybe? The fifth spot, I don't know. Other than trying to trick someone or quiz someone, um, I've never, you don't really see it written out, but basically if someone has biventricular pacing, so um, pacing from the right and left ventricle, um, you can put uh, additional uh, clarification of that in that position. But uh, in general, you're going to see three letters, and then I would assume that rate response is not on, and then occasionally you'll see that R in the fourth position. Great. That's super helpful. All right. So, Jared, let me ask you about that fifth letter. You said it would indicate if someone had biventricular pacing, but why would someone have biventricular pacing? Yeah, so there's this thing, biventricular pacing, which you also hear someone say CRT, um, meaning uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy. And basically the idea there is that you're going to pace both ventricles at the same time. So if you imagine the heart like a balloon filling with blood and then you want to squeeze it out, your typical sort of pacing from just the right side is sort of pushing on one side of that balloon. But if you can get both sides to sort of contract together, imagine kind of squeezing squishing the balloon with your hands from both sides at the same time, you'll get a more vigorous contraction, specifically of the left ventricle. Um, So this thing, CRT or biventricular pacing, um, more so than it's a solution to having a bradycardia problem, it's actually a solution for a heart failure problem. Um, So we talked earlier about kind of dealing with slow heart rhythms and fast heart rhythms, but this sort of biventricular pacing is actually more of uh, an indication in, in someone who has heart failure who may not have any bradycardia. Of course, someone with a CRT device could have also have bradycardia or be pacemaker dependent. Okay, that's great. Now, the other question that, that didn't come up before, but the reason one would prefer to pace the atrium and the ventricle as opposed to just the ventricle, if you have the choice, is that you're going to get better cardiac output, right? Right. So uh, maintaining AV synchrony. So uh, you want to have your lub and your dub working together and your you know appropriate preload, et cetera. So um, always, just like it's better to be in sinus rhythm than to be in AFib, um, you want to um, you want to sort of have the A and the V working together. And actually, people who are in sinus rhythm with a single chamber pacemaker in the ventricle get this thing called pacemaker syndrome, um, which is uh, among in addition to sort of loss of AV synchrony, there's this um, sort of the contraction of the ventricle in the wrong, wrong time in the cycle and sort of backflow mm-hmm. um, that causes this thing called pacemaker syndrome. Um, with CRT, you may see someone write CRTP or CRTD. Um, so that's just some nomenclature to know about. So CRT means that there's a wire uh, around each ventricle and they're getting biventricular pacing. And if there's a P afterwards, it's a pacemaker. So you can have a CRT system that's a pacemaker, or you can have CRTD. That's a CRT system that's connected to a defibrillator uh, where you have the defibrillation capabilities as well. Great. All right. Thanks. So we've talked about AICDs and pacemakers. Are there any other implantable devices that we should be talking about? I mean, there's obviously things like VADs. We're not going to get into VADs. But uh, anything else, or have we covered the, the big two? Uh, we've covered the big things. I think the two things that I'll mention that are sort of newer and that make some of the broad generalizations that I've said uh, perhaps less accurate is 
Uh, one is there's something called a subcutaneous ICD, which has been, been around for five to ten years now or so. Um, and that, rather than, I've been talking primarily about transvenous devices, so the device being subcutaneous, but sorry, the leads being transvenous. Mm-hmm. A subcutaneous ICD is an entirely subcutaneous system. Um, and uh, it has uh, the ability to deliver shocks for VT or VF, but it does not have the ability to deliver any pacing. So I mentioned earlier all ICDs are pacemakers. The exception would be this device called a subcutaneous ICD. Um, and you, you will see more and more of these. They tend to be a good option for anyone who's at high risk of infection. So for mm-hmm. example, a dialysis patient is often bacteremic, and you worry about those leads being on the inside of the heart. Sure. Uh, and the other time you'll see it is sometimes in younger patients it's a nicer option because they're not stuck with leads in their vasculature for decades on end. Okay. Um, the other device I'll mention is something called a leadless pacemaker, um, which is a, a newer device that um, it's kind of yet to be seen what direction this will be going in, but it could be the future. Um, and the idea of a leadless pacemaker is actually the entire device is inside the heart. So currently, um, there's uh, one leadless p- pacemaker that you'll see, and it's shaped kind of like a bullet, and the battery and computer and pacing ability are all in that, and it gets placed in the right ventricle. Um, and so it's, I think it was invented initially to scare radiologists on, uh, on chest x-rays, but... Um, but so you may see these sort of non-traditional pacemakers as well. For the moment, there's no sort of dual chamber uh, uh, equivalent of that, but that's sort of the future. Great, very cool. All right, so let's think about as anesthesiologists or anesthesia practitioners, what should we be thinking about if we have a patient with one of these devices, whether an AICD or a pacemaker? Um, so I think the first thing that you want to be thinking about is why do they have this device in the first place? So, um, you know, if all you knew about a patient was that they had a pacemaker defibrillator, I think it's helpful to know is the reason they have it, sinus node dysfunction or AV block. And then especially if they have a defibrillator, why do they have a defibrillator? Do they have it because they've got a low EF and bad heart failure, or do they have it because they had an episode of VF a long time ago but are otherwise very healthy? So I think that's the fundamental first question. And then, of course, the second question is, what does, uh, what's the impact of this pacemaker or defibrillator uh, you know, on the surgery that we're embarking on? So. Right, absolutely. So wh- how do we tell? I mean, how do we know what, if anything, needs to be done preoperatively for these patients? Sure. So I think, um, well, one is that sort of any hospital probably should has a, some kind of sort of system or uh, worked out for, for what to do when, um, you know, someone's... Uh, preoperative getting set up and, and they have a pacemaker or defibrillator. And sort of local practices, I think, are going to vary from place to place. So what I'll try to do is just kind of talk about sort of general types of considerations. Absolutely. Um, the uh, fundamental issue um, in an OR really, as it relates to pacemakers and defibrillators, is electrocautery, um, and specifically monopolar electrocautery, which is what you'll see with a typical bovie. Um, so the issue is... Um, if uh, when when you use electrocautery, um, that can create electromagnetic interference that the pacemaker senses. And so the two sort of there are more than this, but the two major things are um, if the pacemaker senses that cautery, it might it senses a bunch of electrical activity. It might think the patient's having a fast heart rate when they're not really. And so that's called oversensing. And what oversensing does is it inhibits pacing. So maybe it was just kind of cruising along pacing in its VVI or DDD mode. But when it senses this interference, it thinks the heart rate's fast. I don't need to pace anymore. And then all of a sudden, the patient's asystolic or something right. like so that. So this the worst case scenario here is a patient who, who has no underlying rhythm. Right. They are totally pacemaker dependent. Without it, as you said, they are asystolic. 
they se- the device senses the bovie and thinks, oh, they, they their heart started working again, and so stops pacing. Right and now, you've got a patient with no with no uh, heartbeat. And then the sort of uh, equivalent uh, thing for uh, ICDs is it might sense that interference as a really fast heart rhythm and say, oh my gosh, VT or VF is happening right now. I need to deliver either my pacing therapy or a shock therapy, um, when in reality the patient's just having normal sinus rhythm. Right. And so this is the equivalent of what we see in the operating room when our EKG readout looks like VTAC or even VFib, but the pulse ox heart rate is still 60 or 70. Yeah, and that's where, you know, Taking a peek at your plethysmography or your arterial line, if you have one, yep. can be really helpful in sorting out what's actually happening. Right. Um, so, unfortunately, though, we can't ask the pacemaker or AICD to take a look at the pulse ox uh, heart rate. It's going to sense what it's going to sense. So, what do we need to do about it if we're worried about this happening? Or, I guess, let me ask first, how do we decide? Does every patient with a pacemaker or AICD, we need to worry about this? You said it's mostly with monopolar electrocautery. So yeah. If no electrocautery is being used, we probably don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Presumably, if it's at least the teaching we have, and you tell me if you agree, is that if the surgery, even with electrocautery, is below the waist, mm-hmm. we don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. So, um, a couple. So, again, if no electrocautery or anything that would create electromagnetic interference is at all involved in the surgery, then it's really just a non-issue. Um, I guess a caveat I'll give to that is if you have a patient with a pacemaker or defibrillator and no one has checked on it in years, you know, for a pacemaker, I'd say more than a year or defibrillator, more than six months, just for, if not for the safety during that surgery, then for that patient's safety long-term, it might be worth having someone look at it and make sure that's functioning appropriately. Um, but the, um, as you mentioned, um, sort of, there's uh, monopolar uh, electrocautery is what we're doing. So if the, if the surgeon can use bipolar electrocautery, um, that basically mitigates all, all of the risk, uh, unless they're doing it sort of directly over the device. Okay. And even then, it's probably fine. So, um, And then the other thing is, um, in general, the studies show that if you're more than six inches away from the device, or I should say the current path is more than six inches away from the device, uh, you're probably going to be fine. Um, but if you look at sort of guideline statements and things like that, they say anything below the umbilicus is extremely unlikely to have sort of any of these uh, oversensing type of issues. Okay. Um, and, and you can actually sort of, uh, by where you put that sort of patch electrode, where you put that bovie patch on the patient uh-huh. is going to affect where the, uh, where the current path goes. So generally we put that on the leg, and that's a good idea if you're you know, operating on the legs or the lower abdomen, that's going to direct that path away from where the pacemaker is. Right. Um, an example where you might want to put some extra thought into it is, let's say someone has a pacemaker on the ipsilateral and they're getting hand surgery on the the ipsilateral side, you might want to put that patch on that same arm so the current path is sort of stays within that arm rather than going across the body. Great. All right. So when do we, how do we know whether we need to, uh, so let me back up, I guess. If we are worried about um, one of these things we talked about, either overpacing or inappropriate shocking, we need to have somebody reprogram this thing, right? So almost. So I would say it's always worth a phone call to the device team. Okay. And then they can, uh, and so there's certain information that they're going to want. And so, um, you know, be prepared to, uh, 
tell them, um, you know, whether you think the patient has a pacemaker or a defibrillator. Um, be prepared to tell them what kind of surgery you're doing, where on the body it is, and, and what type of cautery that it'll be using. And then, you know, hopefully the patient is sort of known to that particular device clinic or system, but they may not be. Right. Um, and then I think, you know, basically open communication and sort of clear protocols are really key. Um, and so, again, if, if the surgery is, you know, it's on the knee or something like that, it's even if the patient's pacemaker dependent or, um, you know, it's a, an ICD or something like that, um, then they may say that, you know, this doesn't require any reprogramming. Um, the types of uh, surgeries that do are going to be, um, again, an ICD or a pacemaker-dependent patient um, where the surgery is above the umbilicus. Okay, so above the umbilicus and someone. Now, uh, if they are... If it's just a pacemaker and they're not pacemaker dependent, then mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, right? Because if you inhibit this thing, it, they don't need it. Yeah. And so I would say, you know, there's a cost to everything you do. So with reprogramming, you might reprogram to something that's generally the pacemaker has been programmed to be physiologic and as helpful as possible. So when you reprogram, you're, you might turn that into something sort of less physiologic, right. for example, asynchronous pacing, competing. Um, and then also you have to, um, you know, you, you would never want someone to get discharged from the hospital, you know, without their pacemaker being changed back to what it was before. So um, there's always, you know, cost benefit, obviously, to whatever you do. Um, The, uh, in general, I would say if the patient's not pacemaker dependent, it's probably best not to reprogram the device. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, you still want, and we'll talk about this more later, you still want to have a magnet in the room um, and and things of, of, uh, and, you know, the defibrillator and, and pads and the ability to transcutaneous pace, you know, in case some unforeseen consequence happens. So. Right. So, okay. So let's say I've got a patient and either I don't need to do anything. I call, I call you know, it's always worth a phone call, as you said. But if the answer to their, to the uh, EP uh, fellow or, or EP nurse's questions uh, makes them say, no, we're not worried about this, then I, I, fine, I don't need to worry about it. But if we're worried, if it's above the umbilicus and the patient is pacemaker dependent or if it's an AICD, then the options are, uh, if you if you guys say we need to reprogram it, you're going to reprogram it, like we said before, usually to an asynchronous mode, right? Right. So the first thing we'll do for an ICD is turn, we'll say we turn tachytherapies off, right. meaning we turned off that anti-tachycardia pacing and we turned off the sort of shocking function of the device. Um, and then for both an ICD and a pacemaker, we have to consider what we're going to do with the pacing mode. If they're truly pacer-dependent, um, and we think electromagnetic interference is going to be an issue, again, with an above-the-umbilicus type of surgery, um, then we'll typically put it in an asynchronous mode. And again, there's lots of levels here for sort of where open communication is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, w- I love it when the, the surgeon or anesthesiologist says, um, you know, I'd prefer to have this heart rate for the surgery because they're pro their pacemaker might be set at 50, which right. might not at all be the heart rate you want them to have during that surgery. Right. So. All right. And so we do, in any asynchronous mode, unless the patient is asystolic underneath, we do take the risk of an RNT phenomenon, right? Right. Assume if there's a, a competition between the native rhythm and, and, uh, and the asynchronous pacing. So as you said, it's always a good idea to, at the very least, know where your defibrillator is, not your internal but your external defibrillator, and maybe even have it in the room. Now, for someone with an AICD and you guys come and turn off those tachytherapies, our practice here, and I think probably in general, if it's a patient who has it for a reason, right, and they've had uh, V-fib in the past, then you probably want to put pads on that patient from the moment that that thing is turned off until it's turned back on. Right. You should have uh, pads, I would say, on that patient. Um, And then I would say the other thing, I would 
think you probably want to always have this stuff in the room and you don't always need to put the pads uh, on, you know, on a pacemaker type of patient. You don't have to have the pads physically on them uh, unless if, uh, if putting pads on is going to get sort of in the way of the surgical site, you might want to do that in advance. Right. Um, but in general, that and a magnet are things that you would want to have in the room. Right. So let's go back to the magnet now that you mentioned before. So what does a magnet do and why do we want that in the room? Great. So um, this, I think, is a huge source of uh, confusion and maybe the uh, biggest take-home point from this whole podcast today is what a magnet does to a pacemaker and an ICD because it does different things to each one. So when you put a magnet on a pacemaker, you change the pacing mode to asynchronous. So you switch from, uh, if you're in DDD, you'll switch to DOO. Uh, asynchronous pacing of the atrium and ventricle. If you're VVI, you'll switch to VOO. Um, so that's what it does to a pacemaker. So you pop that magnet on, uh, and it'll pace at that set rate. Now, an ICD, uh, when you put a magnet on it, it will turn off the tachytherapies, but it does nothing to the bradycardia pacing algorithm. So uh, it'll turn off the tachytherapies, but it'll keep it at, say, DDD mode, if that's what it was previously. So this is important, for example, if you have an ICD and someone who's pacemaker-dependent, and so they really rely on the pacemaker and ICD functions of that pacemaker defibrillator, um, you can put the magnet on them. They won't get shocked, um, but if there's a lot of interference in things, uh, you know, their pacemaker may sort of oversense and inhibit pacing. Right. Now, we are always taught that we should never assume definitively what the magnet will do, although certainly the most far and away the most likely thing is what you just said. It will uh, turn a pacemaker only into an asynchronous mode and turn off tachytherapies in an AICD without doing anything to the pacemaker. Would you recommend that we still have the device interrogated even if we are planning on putting a magnet on it? Yeah, so I think when in doubt, um, there aren't many things in medicine that are harmless, but having someone look at the defibrillator settings is pretty close. And that's why sometimes as an electrophysiologist, it's hard to say no, because you know you can really only sort of gain information. And what you're alluding to is that it is possible in some defibrillators to turn off the magnet function. So uh, most some defibrillators don't even have that, no matter what. If you put a magnet on it, it'll turn the tachytherapies off. Mm -hmm. And then in the ones where you can turn that sort of function off, the ability to respond to a magnet, um, usually people are going to leave that on. But um, So it really is uh, critical for the um, for sort of your device team that's checking the device to say, um, you know, this is what the response to a magnet is going to be in this particular patient. And, and what I mentioned before, making it asynchronous in pacemakers and turning off tachytherapies but not affecting bradycardia therapy. Uh, and an ICD is what you'll see in, in a great majority of patients. Great. Now, I, certainly what happens here, and I would assume most places, is that when your EP nurse or your electrophysiology fellow or your electrophysiologist or whoever's coming, when they come and reprogram, if they're going to reprogram, they will leave a note and they'll say very specifically what they've done, what the new setting is, and that they will come back after the surgery to turn it back on. Yeah. Our, you know, your job is to tell us... Um, you know what what you're going to do to the patient in the surgery, and then our job is to is to actively sort of communicate to you what kind of device is this? Is it a pacemaker? Is it a defibrillator? What mode is it in when you're going to the OR? You know both the mode and the rate and things like that. Um, we have the ability to test if the pacemaker if the patient is pacemaker dependent, so we should tell you that. Um, we should be able to tell you uh, what are the ICD rate cutoffs. So if we don't turn off the ICD therapies, that you know you know when shocks and things like that are a possibility. Right, um, and then we 
also, like I just mentioned, uh, should tell you what the response to a magnet will be. Now, we're also checking on other things, uh, making sure that the battery life is good and that the leads are working appropriately. And that, that, I think, is just sort of for the device team to deal with. Right. And a really important point you made is that you can tell if this patient is pacemaker dependent. So the patient, and I've had this happen, where the patient says, oh, no, 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 I, you know, I'm not pacemaker dependent. I, I, I don't know why they put it in. And yet you can tell when you interrogate it that actually, you know, X percent of the time, 30 percent of the time, they are being paced. Right. We can tell you the amount of time that they're being paced or not paced in each chamber. And then we can sort of tell you at the moment that we go by. So at the moment we come by and press the inhibit all pacing button, what their underlying heart rhythm is. And so some people can have no underlying heart rhythm at that moment. And then another day, you know, they have some AV conduction or, or what have you. So that the um, pacemaker dependent can be a, a little bit of a fluid thing. But, you know, ideally before the procedure, we can tell you, you know, this patient's pretty dependent on their pacemaker. Great. Now, you mentioned that with the exception of these new sub-Q uh, pacemakers, most ICDs. Uh, I, yeah, sorry, ICDs. Most uh, of the wires are uh, transvenous. So, what, if anything, do we need to keep in mind if we're placing central lines in patients with uh, pacemakers or defibrillators? Sure. So, taking we, I'll just take one step back. So, we talked about all these different types of surgeries, and I kind of left out the idea that you might physically, mechanically be doing something to injure the pacemaker. So sure. um, so we definitely want to know, you know, if you're doing shoulder surgery or, you know, working in that area or any kind of cardiac surgery, uh, open heart surgery, there's a lot of manipulation of those leads. And that's a major reason that we want to check the device before and after to see any changes. So, um, but generally that doesn't come up too often as a, as a specific issue. Um, as far as putting lines in, I think an important point to know is that often after pacemakers have been in, on um, whatever side they're in, usually but not always on the left side, it's very common to have venous occlusion on that side. So whatever side the pacemaker is on, I would, for one, I would just say avoid subclavian access. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as putting an IJ in, if you put an IJ in on the same side, just be prepared for the fact that you might run into a venous occlusion. So uh, you might not probably won't have fluoroscopy. So if you're just threading that wire and it's not going and there's a pacemaker on that side, that's probably a good reason why. If a pacemaker's been in for a long time, more than a year, but uh, even maybe more than a month, those those leads are pretty sort of well socked in there. You're going to have a hard time dislodging it. If there's a really fresh pacemaker, like from that same hospital admission or very recent, um, I would probably communicate with the electrophysiologist that put in that device before trying to put in a line on that side because you don't want to risk sort of dislodging that pacemaker lead. And that's including an IJ line. Exactly, yeah, with an IJ line. So in general, these are going to be on the left, not always, but usually. And so if you're going to do a line, just go for what we typically would do anyway, which would be a right IJ. Exactly. Okay. Um, And if you can't for some reason, then you would want to be careful. And if it's fresh, talk to the electrophysiologist. All right. What about, so we talked a lot about, you know, uh, elective cases, you're going to make sure you talk to the electrophysiology team, get this device interrogated, et cetera. Let's say it's an emergency case and uh, it happens at 2 a.m. and you're going straight to the operating room, it's a trauma or whatever, and you notice that this person had, you get a chest x-ray in the trauma bay and, oh, guess what, they have an AICD. But we're going straight to the OR, so there's no time for reprogramming. So what should we do in that in that scenario? Yeah, so um, the magnet is your friend. <laughs> so um, you can always uh, try to, you know, call the electrophysiology team to try to get some input. But, um, you know, the, the same principles that we discussed earlier apply. So, again, if you're below the umbilicus, no matter what kind of device they have, whatever electrocotter you're using, it's probably not going to be an issue. If you're doing uh, surgery, you know, above the waist, um, then um, hopefully you can look at their uh, EK 
EKG or telemetry at that moment and see if they're pacing or not pacing. So, for example, if it's a pacemaker and they're not pacing, they're probably not pacemaker dependent, right. and it's probably okay to just proceed. Um, and then you're, of course, watching the arterial line or or um, or O2 sat, and, and you'll if you by some chance see inhibition of pacing, then you can pop that uh, magnet on there. Or if you want to be careful, you can just put the magnet on sort of prophylactically. Um, if they're pacemaker dependent, then I would say go ahead and put that pacemaker on right now. Or sorry, okay. put that magnet on right now. And then for a defibrillator, um, you know, sort of the same concepts apply. Um, but, you know, I think it's always simplest when confused to, to put the magnet on and turn tachytherapies off. Just be aware that you want to have a, you know, external defibrillator nearby uh, in case something happens. So. Now, how confident are you that when we take the magnet off, everything goes back? to how it was before the magnet was put on. So uh, it'd be lovely if every manufacturer was the same. Um, but uh, for the most part, it'll revert back uh, to the mode that it was on previously, but not universally. And so I would say if you did you know, an emergent surgery and there was a magnet involved or, or anything like that, um, I think it's always probably on the safe side to have somebody check the device. Okay. Um, one thing we didn't mention is in general uh, post-op, uh, if the... Obviously, if the device was reprogrammed before, you'll want it checked and reprogrammed after. Um, and uh, the other thing is, um, and then if there was any sort of manipulation of the area around the device, you want to make sure that the device wasn't injured. And then if the device was uh, programmed asynchronous or tachytherapies were turned off, you're going to want to keep that patient on telemetry and monitored uh, until it's changed back. So I think that's a, it, it becomes an important logistics issue as far as sort of where the patient goes, what units they go to, what's going on in the PACU. But until that's reprogrammed, you want to keep the person on telemetry. Right. And I would say, you know, when in doubt, do the safe thing. So if you're, you know, someone's got an AICD and you're not 100% sure why, and, but it gets turned off, I, I just keep pads on that patient. I keep pads on them with the defibrillator sitting right next to their pre-op bed until we go back to the OR, and I've got the defibrillator with me in the OR, and it stays with them in the PACU or the ICU or wherever they go until the uh, defibrillator itself gets turned back on. Yeah, I agree with that. And one thing I left out, I can't believe I waited this long before I remember this, but when you tell uh, uh, one of us nerdy electrophysiologists that you want the device turned off, or turned back on, the, the little bit of us that's still alive <laughs> dies a, a slower little death. So, so what we're doing is uh, very rarely are we completely, you know, we don't turn the pacemaker off. We change the pacing motor. We don't, right. we don't turn it. So, so um, uh, just a little tip to, <laughs> to have positive communication. Off. Say reprogram. <laughs> okay. All right. Good tip. Um, all right. And so then we talked about postoperatively, uh, if you had a magnet on and you're removing it, make sure you get a check so you know what's actually where you've ended up without the magnet. Uh, make sure you talk to EP about getting it reprogrammed back to its original settings. Um, and then the last thing I, I wanted to ask, and then I'll let you fill in anything you think we missed, but um, a lot of times scans come up with these patients. So can patients with uh, defibrillators and AIC, or, uh, ACDs and pacemakers, can they get uh, CT scans and MRIs? Yeah, so um, CT scans and x-rays and things like that, I would say, is near universal, yes, sort of outside of case reports and sort of unusual scenarios. So send them down to the CT scanner without worry. Uh, MRI is actually a a really kind of interesting area in this field in the last 10 years. It it went from uh, uninteresting to interesting and back to uninteresting. But if if you've been near an MRI scanner, you'll see all over it says no metal, no pacemakers, no defibrillators, uh, because they they have metal in them. And uh, 
um, and so people went by that for uh, for a long time. Um, and then uh, some brave people at a small institution called Johns Hopkins um, <laughs> heard of it. decided to uh, actually test how true that is. Um, and so now there's been a lot of literature, I mean, published on sort of tens of thousands of patients with pacemakers or defibrillators getting MRIs. And so any individual hospital that's going to do this needs to have sort of a system set up where you check the device beforehand and check the device afterwards. Uh, but as a, as a gross generalization, um, most people who have a device are going to be able to get their MRI. Um, some of the uh, exceptions are, you know, if you have a if you're an ICU patient with a temporary wire yep. uh, through the IJ, that's not a good candidate, um, or things that are called abandoned or epicardial leads. Um, but for the majority of people um, who've had a pacemaker placed in the last sort of 15 or so years or 20 years, that it's going to be safe to get an MRI. But uh, you can't just sort of send them down there blindly. It, it is generally a bit of a systems issue to have the device checked before and afterwards. Um, and, um, and now, actually, most pacemakers and defibrillators that are getting implanted have uh, received this sort of FDA conditional uh, approval um, where they have a specific MRI mode um, and that it's sort of conditionally safe to be in an MRI in an appropriate monitoring environment. So it's... Uh, to you know, be the only one operating the MRI scanner and doing everything, it's a little complicated, but uh, most hospitals are now moving towards a system to MR a lot of these patients. Because a lot of these people exist, and they're older, and they're, much, they're very likely to get an MRI in their lifetime. So. Right. Great. All right. That's really interesting. And you say it's gone from to, from interesting to not so interesting because now we say no problem. Yeah. These people yeah. usually can get And there, there are still some hospitals where it's really hard. So you know, we, we get referrals from all over to get you know a pretty routine MRI. But I think as, um, as more and more of these uh, devices have the FDA labeling in addition, um, and more, more sort of hospital systems are going to become adept at, at giving MRIs to these patients. Great. Jared, anything we didn't cover you think we should? Um, we can go. So I guess we didn't talk about a couple other kind of uh, specific types of surgeries um, where things are relevant. So um, one... One that's a couple that are very specific to EP is if the patient's getting an ablation procedure or a cardioversion on their special device um, considerations. Um, the good news there is uh, a electrophysiologist is doing the procedure generally, so um, so they should be taking care of sort of pre and post programming. And as the anesthesiologist, generally shouldn't have to worry about it, other than to check that the electrophysiologist remembered. Right. Um, there are some other things, uh, radiation therapy. Um, so there are issues with sort of getting radiation therapy directly over the device. Um, that's something for the radiation oncologist and nuclear physicist and things like that to worry about. Um, in uh, colonoscopies, endoscopy, um, there is sometimes uh, cautery used, and so that's something to keep in mind. Um, and then there are other things uh, in, in the world that can cause electromagnetic interference. So a common uh, one, for example, is like a TENS unit or something like that can cause inhibition of pacing. So that's something that can come up there. Great. And TENS is a transcutaneous electric nerve stimulator. I was really hoping you wouldn't quiz me on that. So. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It's something like that. Um, but these are things um, that people use for chronic pain, for example, and it's essentially something you strap on to your body and it gives you some electrical impulses um, to try to ease pain of muscles is, is my understanding, but it certainly sounds like it could do the same thing that yeah. cautery could do. Yeah. 
Um, and then again, I think I stressed this earlier, but uh, open communication is really the key. Um, uh, devices are complicated. All the little, uh, all not just the pacing modes, but all sorts of other um, sort of aspects and features. Uh, they vary uh, not only in their terminology and function between different manufacturers, um, and then all these issues of is the patient pacemaker dependent or not dependent. And so, really, um, sort of uh, open communication um, is, is very important. Um, and I think trust between the two groups, um, you know, that w when we say we, you do or don't need to reprogram to, to sort of be able to trust that information. Um, and then it's always good to know that sort of unexpected things happen and, and, and you know, having a magnet or um, defibrillator pads or things like that can be, can be helpful. Okay, and let me emphasize uh, one other thing, a time when you might have the magnet on and not everything is going to be okay. So I mentioned that for uh, ICDs, that putting a magnet on the device turns off the tachytherapies but doesn't do anything to the pacing mode. And so someone might have an ICD and also be pacemaker dependent. And when they start having that sort of burst of cautery, um, they won't get a tachytherapy therapy, they won't get a shock, um, but they may inhibit their pacing and then you'll have you know a period of asystole. So um, so in an emergency situation, that can put uh, the anesthesiologist and the surgical team in a tough spot because there's nothing to sort of ensure ongoing pacing uh, in an ICD device. Um, and so in that scenario, I mean, one thing you can do is try to have someone come by to reprogram the device uh, if they're available. Uh, if they're not, and every time they're doing cauteries inhibiting pacing, um, the solution, however annoying for the surgeon, uh, is to try to ask them to limit it to sort of short bursts of cautery. Uh, the idea idea being if they just do, you know, cautery for three seconds, there may be no pacing during those three seconds, but then they stop, and for a few seconds you'll have, you know, appropriate pacing, because um, it'll come right back as soon as that interference goes away. Um, so in, in a scenario um, where you do see inhibition of pacing, um, you know, if it's a pacemaker, the magnet will make it asynchronous. If it's an ICD, the magnet won't help you, um, but you can always ask the surgeon, uh, who may or may not comply, uh, to sort of uh, limit the, uh, at least the, the length of individual bursts of cautery to prevent inhibition of pacing. That's a great tip. Thank you. Great. Jared, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. This was fun. All right. That was great. I'm so glad we could get Jared to come on the show. Let us know what you thought of the show and whether you manage pacemakers and AICDs in any different way or whether there's anything we left out by going to the website, accrac.com. You can leave a comment that everybody can learn from. You can also see, of course, all the other episodes, and you can contact me at acrac at acrac.com. You can also join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the website. You can see all of the episodes by category, and you can comment on any of them. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And if you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to Brian Park, who does amazing outlines for some of the shows, and to all of you who are already patrons on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jared Miller, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 